I'm going to get right to it this morning. Take your uh, Bible and turn to the Old Testament to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 17. And we're going to read two, uh, two verses from two different parts here in this area. But Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood, by reason of the life, that makes atonement. And then turn over just a couple pages to uh, 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 Leviticus 19. Verse 2. Leviticus 19, verse 2. Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we're so thankful for an opportunity to gather together and to worship you and to praise you and to thank you and now to study your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would... Uh, Open our minds to receive your truth, uh, to think carefully on the topic that we are covering uh, this morning, uh, to not only grow in our love and admiration for you, but to grow in our awe of you and the fact that we can even come into your presence and help us to understand what that means and what a great blessing and privilege uh, we have to uh, praise you and worship you and thank you. And help us to think deeply on the truth of your word, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we're once again returning to this very high-level overview of the book of Leviticus. Uh, somewhat as a background for the information that I think might be helpful to us as we are actually working our way towards the, uh, an exposition of the book of Hebrews. And before we got into that book, or before we get into that book, I thought it would be helpful just to pick out some of the more uh, important uh, high points, uh, if you will, out of the book of Leviticus. Uh, the two verses that we just read are key verses uh, for the book. Uh, they're really the major emphasis of the book of Leviticus, the necessity of uh, blood being shed for atonement, and then the holiness of God. Now, as I told you, the book of Hebrews is primarily written to Jewish audience, most of those who are converts to Christ, not all, uh, but as a group of Jewish individuals, uh, again, we're trying to head towards that book, as a group of Jewish individuals uh, who have been the recipients of the book of Hebrews, they would have a fundamental working knowledge, a foundational <coughs> understanding, <coughs> excuse me, of the book of Leviticus and, and the principles that uh, it contained. It was the first book that kids started to study when they were uh, learning the Word of God. So what we're doing in the book of Leviticus is just for a couple of weeks trying to pick up some of the points that the Hebrew recipients would have understood. We're not going to be here very long. I, I said that last week, and many of you laughed, and we'll see. Um, but I, my plan is this week and next week, Lord willing, and, and we'll be done. Uh, because I, I just want to pick out some principles and, and, and then get to uh, the book of Hebrews. And whatever else is in the book of Hebrews that has to do with Leviticus, we'll just pick that up as we work through that text. So as, as I mentioned, uh, this is the second time here in this book. And, and last week in the overall looking at the context of the first five books of the New Test or the Old Testament, you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the first five books. Leviticus is properly right there in the middle. Uh, Genesis deals with the origin and the fall of mankind. Exodus deals with God's redemption of the nation of Israel from their bondage in, in Egypt. And Leviticus deals with how a holy God can be approached by sinful men. Right? And, and then the, the first part, the second half of that book, the book of Leviticus, is really how sinful men uh, can live before a holy God. Now, last time we were together, we did a very quick uh, uh, overview of, of portions of the book of Exodus, right before Leviticus, uh, of the nation of Israel arriving at Mount Sinai. That was in uh, chapter 19. And 19 comes obviously right before chapter 20. That's the giving of the Ten Commandments. And we saw that how God was giving to the nation of Israel uh, um, instructions to prepare to meet him, uh, prepare themselves for a visitation from God. So we saw the whole event, the visitation from God, it was an utterly a terrifying situation uh, for the nation of Israel because the truth is no man can come near to God and live. And I think we need to keep that in, in, our, in the background of our mind. Uh, and I'm going to address it several times through this morning, but there's far too far a casual attitude 
between modern Christianity and the biblical God. No man can come near to God and live. Now we saw in that picture, <laughs> Israel camped at the, at the base of Sinai, God set boundaries on the mountain. He instructed the people not to go up. He instructed them not to gaze upon God, not even touch the, the, the mountain under penalty of death. And then when we saw God appear there on, on the mountain, on Mount Sinai, the mountain was all in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire and smoke ascended uh, from it like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. And there was a sound of a trumpet that grew louder and louder and Moses spoke with God and God returned and answered him with, with thunder. And all the people of the nation of Israel camped around the mountain were terrified. They were trembling. At the sight, the sound, and listen, the presence of the Holy God. And rightly so. Again, that's one of the main issues I want to address this morning for us to come away with a better consideration, a better understanding of the fact that God is holy and immensely so. Again, it's something that I really feel that far too many evangelicals today have completely forgotten and God has treated far too casually, which is a tremendous error. The writer of the book of Hebrews, in fact, says in Hebrews 10.31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So the commonness, uh, the casualness of a modern Christianity, uh, there certainly are in that context, there's certainly not many people who would say it's a terrifying thing to come into God's presence. But the reality is, it is a terrifying thing to come into the presence of the living God. We have uh, devolved to a very far too low view of God and a very far too high view of man, and that's a tremendous problem in the modern church. If you were to ask uh, most in any individual, most modern men, what his greatest problem is, uh, even amongst those who attend church on a regular basis, uh, a man may list uh, 10,000 temporal problems, but he misses, most men would miss his greatest problem. And I absolutely guarantee you, whatever 10,000 problems you're dealing with uh, on a daily basis uh, pales in comparison uh, to the problem of God, the Holy God. In fact, the Holy Spirit says through Paul, uh, man's greatest problem is this very thing. Uh, Romans 3.18, he says, uh, Paul says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. That's mankind's problem. That's mankind's greatest problem. An improper view of the person of God. Revelation 15.4, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. One writer says this, there is no one like our God he only is independently, infinitely, immutably holy. In Scripture, he's frequently styled the Holy One. He is so because the sum of all moral excellency is found in him. He is absolute purity, unsullied even by the shadow of sin. God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all, as it writes, uh, uh, John says in 1 John 1 5. So, holiness is the very excellency of the divine nature. The great God is glorious. In holiness, as it says in Exodus 15:11, there's no one like our God. And God, through Asaph, the writer of Psalm 50, uh, speaking uh, uh, about appropriate worship, uh, and then he chastens uh, the unbelieving wicked because of their improper understanding of who God is. What is proper worship? What do men think about God? Here's the rebuke in Psalm 50, verse 21: You thought that I was like you. You thought that I was just like you. I will prove you and state the case uh, in order uh, before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you into pieces, and there's none to deliver you. The great problem with modern man is he thinks that we're just like God. And God says, look, I'll condemn you. I'll, I'll reprove you. I'll state my case before your eyes and prove you wrong. Again, far too many evangelicals fail to understand the immeasurable distance between man and the Holy God and attempt to approach him with too much casualness and too much familiarity. 
It has been well said uh, that the most important fact about a man is not what he says or he does, but what he thinks about God. In fact, so vitally important is uh, a proper <laughs> excuse me, view of God. Uh, A.W. Tozer once said this, he says, A proper view of God is to worship what the foundation is to the temple. Where it is inadequate or out of plumb, the whole structure must sooner or later collapse. He says, I believe there is scarcely an error in doctrine or failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ennoble thoughts of God. So again, imperfect and ennoble thoughts of God is a tremendous problem amongst the modern church. And the truth is our idea of God must correspond as nearly as possible to the true being of God. Because a right concept of God is not only basic to systematic theology, but a right concept of God is, is basic to practical Christian living. Because the truth is what you believe about God is how you live your life. Your view of God determines what you're like, how, how you act, what you think is important, and then ultimately where you will spend eternity. But the sad truth is much of the church today has lost or surrendered her once lofty concept of God and His holiness. It's lost the concept of the majesty of God. And as one writer says, it is substituted for it one so lone, so noble as to be utterly unworthy of thinking or worshiping men. What the modern church has done is begotten a God made from a fallen heart in its own likeness that has nothing to do with the likeness of the true God. And the truth is, thinking wrong about God, wrong thoughts about God, is idolatry. It's idolatry of the heart. And we have to be aware of the pride of intellect that accepts the the false notion that idolatry consists of only kneeling before visible objects of stone or wood. But the fact is, the most hideous form of idolatry is an idolatrous heart that assumes that God is other than He actually is. An idolatrous heart that substitutes the true God for one, again, made in our own likeness. In fact, Arthur Pink said this. He said, the God of this 20th century uh, no more resembles the supreme sovereign of the Holy Scripture than does the dim flickering candle of the glory of the midday sun. And the quote-unquote God who is now talked about in the average pulpit spoken of mentioned, preached in most so-called Bible conferences is the figment of human imagination and the invention of sentimentality. He says the heathen outside of the pale of Christendom form gods out of wood and stone while millions of heathen inside Christendom manufacture a god out of their own carnal mind. He goes on and he says in reality they're but atheists for there's no other possible alternative between the absolutely supreme God and no God at all. A God whose will is resisted, whose designs are frustrated, whose purposes are checkmated, possesses no title to deity, and so far from being a fit object of worship, merits not but contempt. So we must make sure that we have a proper biblical view of who God is. The Lord Most High, who is the Holy, Holy, Holy One. Right, the, the holy, holy, holy God, one who is majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, uh, Exodus fifteen eleven. We must rid our minds of anything about God that is unworthy of God, and think rightly of Him. And again, our idea of Him must correspond as nearly as possible to the true being of God. And I believe it was Tozer who asked this question. He said, "When we ask what is God like." He says the only correct, or only correct answer is God is not like anything. That's a great statement. What is God like? The only correct answer he said is God is not like anything. That is, he is not exactly like anyone or anything because he's God. Someone once said we learn uh, by using what we already know as a bridge over which to pass to the unknown. But one of the difficulties of the, of the human mind is trying to understand the incomprehensible God which is part of the natural, part of nature, trying to describe that which is above nature, that which is supernatural, trying to describe and understand this uh, supernatural, perfect being. And that's the problem. 
And I think you see that a lot of times in the Scripture with the inspired men, with, with prophets. When, when, they're, when they're given a vision of God, they're trying to describe that vision. The writer is often given a way to use many uh, like words uh, to make themselves understood. You see it, I think, in, especially in the book of Ezekiel and the book of the Revelation, uh, the prophet trying to describe God. Uh, Ezekiel has a vision, the heavens are open, uh, he, he beholds God, and he finds himself looking at that which he has no language to describe, seeing what is completely different from anything that he had ever seen or known uh, before. He finds himself without language to describe it. Again, you see the same thing in the book of, uh, of uh, Revelation by John. Both use words when describing God, words such as something like or, or resembling or, or the appearance of. Because the truth is there's no one like God. There's no one like God. And God on one hand is incomprehensible. So how can the finite, which is us, understand the infinite? How can man who has limited knowledge to find one who is omnipotent or who has all knowledge? How can sinful man describe the one who is absolutely holy and unlike anyone or unlike any other created thing? And the truth is God is undefinable by what man knows. Again, it was Tozer who said, whatever we visualize God to be, he is not. If we have constructed our image out of that which has been made, and what he has made is not God. If we insist upon trying to imagine him, we end up with an idol, made not with hands but with thoughts. An idol of the mind is as offensive to God as an idol of the hand. So if we're going to understand God properly, then we have to understand him by way of revelation. It has to be by way of revelation by the word of God. The self-revealing God tells us who he is. And what he's like, and two times in the totality of the text of uh, the Scripture, we read that God is thrice holy, the thrice holy God. You read it in Isaiah chapter 6, the seraphim are standing above the Lord, and one calls out to another and says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And you see it again at the uh, end of the, uh, the, the Bible, in the book of the Revelation. Again, uh, John describing the scene, uh, Revelation 4, verse 8, four living creatures, and each one of them having six wings are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. There's no one like our God. And we would do ourselves well to make sure that we do not fall into the error of over-familiarity or over-casualness with the person of God. And then personally hear that rebuke of God who said, you thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you. I will state my case against you. Again, there's no one like God. Infinitely holy and rightly the object of fear. And the dominant theme of the book of Leviticus is the holiness of this God. And that theme is also expressed in the book of Hebrews. And the Jews knew that, again, who are receiving that writing, the book of Hebrews. They knew it was a dangerous thing to approach God. Exodus thirty-three twenty says, no man can see God and live. So again, that's where the nation of Israel is in our kind of quick overview here. The nation of Israel is camped before Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19, and God is going to come to them. And they're absolutely rightly so in terror at his arrival. So the question is, how does a sinful man approach God? How does sinful man approach a holy God? And, and again, God is the one who sets the parameters. God is the one who determines how a man can approach him. And as we've seen, it's done through a series of laws and regulations that God sets down in the book of Leviticus. Now, at the end of the, the book of Exodus, before you get into Leviticus, uh, God has given certain instructions. He's given the Ten Commandments. He's given instructions on the tabernacle, how to build a tent of meeting, how to construct it, how to construct all the furnishings and the priestly robes, etc., and so forth. And although Israel is a sinful people who often broke the covenant that God had with them, God in His mercy allows them to approach Him. 
And God's presence fills the tabernacle at the end of chapter 40 in the book of Exodus because that's what God promised, that he would be with his people, he would dwell with them. So the book of Leviticus comes to a close, and then it's Leviticus chapter 1. Again, here's how God demands that sinful men approach him. Leviticus 1.1 says, The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, and then instructions follow. And as we studied last uh, time, uh, the the first seven chapters or so uh, give instruction on sacrifice, how sinful men can approach a holy God. We worked our way through the first five sacrifices, the first five major sacrifices that God uh, gives in order to uh, uh, allow man to come near to him. And we saw all of them but one. That would be the sacrifice of the the grain offering. All of the other sacrifices were bloody sacrifices. The burnt offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, all immensely bloody and all intentionally gruesome. And in all the sacrifices, you had a a sacrifice, you have a worshiper, and you have the priest who stood as the intermediary intermediary, uh, between God and man. As I told you, the worshiper would bring the offering and he would lay his hand on top of the offering to substitute the sacrifice, symbolically admitting his guilt and then symbolically transferring his sin, the guilt of his sin to that animal. And then the worshiper would slay that animal, that animal that was innocent, obviously, of any of man's sin, standing in the place of the sinner. The sinless animal takes the guilt of the sinner, the worshiper, and pays the ultimate price via substitution, which again is death, the shedding of the blood. The priest comes, he collects the blood, because the life of the flesh is in the blood. And then the priest would not sprinkle that blood on the altar, but he would throw great quantities of blood on the altar. So there would be blood everywhere. So again, that's in part why I read uh, uh, 17 uh, verse 11 at the top of the hour, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is, by, uh, it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. And the author of the book of Hebrews echoes that same theme. In Hebrews 9, verse 22, he says, According to the law, one may say almost all things are cleansed with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Over 80 times in the book of Leviticus, there are specific, explicit references to blood. uh, Dealing with atonement, the, the need of atonement, the need for man to be cleansed. And again, the whole picture, the loathsomeness, the, 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 the uh, disgusting picture of, uh, uh, of all of the blood is just a reminder of the loathsomeness of sin. Again, the whole process intentionally very visually graphic, intentionally meant to be utterly offensive. Not just the sights, not just the sounds, but the smell, all meant to offend because of the sinfulness of sin and the holiness of God. Because God sees all sin as absolutely abhorrent. Sin is an utter abomination before a holy and a righteous God. The wages of sin is death. And the penalty is inflexibly harsh and rigid. Death is the penalty for sin. Now the word sin occurs about 84 times in the book of Leviticus. And again, sin is utterly sinful. And again, uh, the the sinfulness of sin is another theme that runs through uh, the book of Leviticus. And the cost to forgive sin is high. Sin is not easily forgivable. The picture in the Old Testament is the sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, uh, the shedding of blood everywhere, and then ultimately the cost of sin to be forgiven will be the shed blood of the dear Lord Jesus Christ, His very life, all those Old Testament Sacrifice is a picture of his ultimate sacrifice. And the only way that a holy God can be approached by sinful man is through the shedding of blood. The only way that sin can be forgiven, the only way that sin can be atoned for, is through the shedding of blood. Because the wages of sin is death. Now, we're not going to get into a great detailed exposition of the book of Leviticus. I just want that first visual thought to stand in your mind before we get to Hebrews in a couple of weeks, Lord willing. But what comes next in the book of Leviticus 
chapters uh, 6, verse 8 through 7, verse 38, we have regulations that we went to the first uh, sacrifices. Now the regulations regarding the priesthood and the offerings associated with them. Because the priests are also sinners. And the priests have to have their sin atoned for. And then from chapter 8 through 10, you have the beginning of the ministry of the priesthood. And and as I told you in the book of uh, Leviticus, there are basically two major divisions that need to be recognized. The first 16 chapters, uh, you have the laws that explain how a man, a sinful man, has personal access to the holy God. And then chapter 17 through 27 details how man is to live uh, spiritually acceptable uh, a life before this holy God. How to live life before him. And all various aspects of, of life are covered in those chapters. But again, the sinfulness of sin, the holiness of God, preeminent issues in the book of Leviticus. And again, the second text we read, Leviticus 19.2, speak to the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, uh, the Lord your God, am holy. So again, the book of Leviticus is packed with all kinds of laws and priestly regulations and instructions and, and rules to remind everybody of the high standard of holiness that God requires for his people. All of the dietary laws, all of the ceremonial sacrifices and cleansing, all the rules about daily life, all the meticulous rules detailed, all the instructions, how to be set apart as a people uh, to a holy God. Uh, Again, the sinfulness of sin, the holiness of God, dominating themes in that book. Now, I told you that uh, at last time, as the instructions are starting to be given uh, to the priests, uh, there's a tragic situation that happens uh, in, in chapter 10. So turn turn there to Leviticus chapter 10. And it has to do with two uh, men, uh, the eldest sons of Aaron, two men named Nadab and Abihu. In chapter 8, you have the ordination of uh, Aaron and his sons to the priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood as it's known. And we're going to see uh, that this is a very serious situation. To be a priest is a very... uh, a dangerous occupation, if you will. Chapter 9, you have Aaron and his sons are commanded to give sacrifice, first for their own sin and then for the sins of the nation. The sin offering, the burnt offering, the peace offering, the, the grain offering uh, were offered for Aaron and his sons. Again, the purpose of these offerings is to make a preparation for the revelation of the glory of God to the people. Uh, go back uh, just to uh, chapter 9, uh, verse 6. And we'll start there. Leviticus 9, 6. And Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Moses said to Aaron, Come near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering, that you may make atonement for yourself and for the people. And then make the offering for the people, that you may make atonement for them, just as the Lord has commanded Now, at the end of the chapter is going to be a revelation of of God's glory. Uh, Look down to verse 22. Chapter 9, verse 22. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them, and he stepped down after making the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offering. And Moses and Aaron went to the tent of meeting, and when they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Verse 24, then fire came uh, from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of the fat of the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their face. The Lord from heaven sends fire and consumes the sacrifice. Now chapter 10. Verse 1, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron took their respective fire pans and after putting fire on them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Verse 2, and fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. Before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. As you read the story further, there's instructions given by Moses to the relatives of these men to take their bodies outside the camp. And Moses gives instructions to Aaron and his two other sons not to show any kinds of signs of outward mourning 
for these two men under the penalty of death. Because these two men, Adab and, uh, Nadab and Abihu, had dared to treat God as unholy. And again, God says, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. Before all the people, I will be honored. Now, we're not told exactly what these men did, the specific nature of their uh, sin. We're not told specifically what the strange fire was that they offered. But again, we know that these two men, Adab and Abihu, they're the two oldest sons of Aaron. Uh, Aaron has four sons. These are the two oldest. And these men had the privilege of accompanying Moses and their father along with others to Mount Sinai when they participated in the covenant meal that God, with God back in Exodus chapter 24. They had just recently been ordained to begin their duties as priests. We don't know how long they had been serving in this capacity when they were put to death, but the inference is that of this shocking incident is probably close to the time of their ordination. Again, we don't know what exactly their sin was, what the strange fire is in detail. A number of people have written lots of things, as you'd imagine, over the years. Some say they got, they got the wrong coals from the wrong altar. They had used the wrong incense. They, uh, they went to an offered, offering an unprescribed time. Uh, maybe they entered into the Holy of Holies at a, at a wrong time. Whatever it is, it's evident that somehow they together agreed to do this thing. Together they offered strange fire or unauthorized fire upon the altar. And in doing that, they're clearly in defiance of God. It was an act of blatant rebellion. An act of blatant rebellion and inexcusable profaning of the holy place. They committed the sin of arrogance and doing so in an act of treason against God. They profaned the, holy, the most holy place. And God deals with them swiftly. Again, Moses' explanation to, to, to Aaron was clear. Uh, Moses said to Aaron, it was what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. Before all the people, I will be honored. Now, now let's read that again. Read that sentence, verse 3 again. By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. For all the people, I will be honored. The ESV says, I will be sanctified. For all the people, I'll be glorified. It's a dangerous thing to approach the living God. And again, the command to Aaron is to remain quiet. No mourning. And properly so. No mourning over these two men who treated God with such callousness, such indifference. The evidence was in, and God renders his verdict immediately against them. Again, these two men acting as priests commit acts of disobedience, and God again brings judgment upon them swiftly. Aaron is silent. No excuses, no protesting, because the holy God punishes the guilty. And by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. So it's interesting, and Luke, uh, or in uh, uh, Leviticus 9.24, you have fire from the Lord coming down and consuming the sacrifices that had been offered. And then just a few verses later, chapter 10, you have fire coming down uh, from heaven, consuming these two men who treated God as less than holy. Now again, we don't know exactly what the strange fire was. But the issue with these two men is they fail to realize that God is utterly and absolutely holy, and he will be treated as such. And they fail to understand that no man approaches God or comes near to God except exactly as God commands. I think it would be safe to say uh, that these two men never dreamed their sin was so serious that God would execute them on the spot, but he did. Immediately, instantaneously. There's another story in the Old Testament that's very uh, similar to uh, this one. It's over in First Chronicles 13. If you want to turn over there, First Chronicles 13, SKC, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, right? 
First Chronicles 13 is a story about a man named Uzzah regarding the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark was Israel's greatest treasure. It had been stolen and carried off by the Philistines to the Temple of Dagon. You remember the story. And it was said when the Ark was captured, the glory of God departed from Israel. The Ark is recovered. It's returned to, to a place to a, a safekeeping, waiting for the appropriate time for its public restoration to a position of prominence in the midst of the nation. The ark was really the rallying point for the nation, the throne of God, as it were, the sacred seat of the Most High. First Chronicles 13, verse 3, and David is the speaker. First Chronicles 13, verse 3. David says, Let us bring back the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in, uh, seek it in the days of Saul. Then all the assembly said that they would do so. For the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. Drop down to verse 7. They carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab and Uzzah and Achao. I drove the cart. David and all of Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, even with songs, with lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. Verse 9, when they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark because the oxen nearly upset it. Verse 10, and the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, so he struck him down because he put out his hand on the ark and he died there before God. Now, from our vantage point, we might say, well, you know, Uzzah, uh, he acted heroically, uh, uh, the ark. He stopped the ark from falling off the, the wagon into the dirt or into the mud. But instead of God congratulating him, God killed him. And he killed him right there on the spot. Just like he did Nadab and Abihu. Because God says, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. God will not allow man to treat his holiness with casualty, in a casual manner. He will not allow man to treat his holiness casually. Now, the bottom line issue with this story is that God had given a very, a previously very direct orders on how to transport the ark. And God had given very strict command on who could and who could not touch the ark. Uzzah was from the Kohathite uh, tribe, uh, and they had a very specific responsibility and duty, and their duty was to take care of the sacred articles of the tabernacle. But God had given instructions that no one from that tribe could ever touch the Ark of the Covenant under any circumstances because that would be a capital offense. There was no emergency grounds for breaking the rule, uh, the command of God. The Ark was holy and was to be treated as such. There were rings on the outside of the Ark and uh, these rings, there were supposed to be poles that would uh, be inserted in these rings for the purpose of transporting the ark. So men wouldn't actually touch the ark. They would carry the ark on the poles. So men were to carry from this tribe the, the ark on these poles. They were never to touch it because, again, God is holy. And again, he gives very specific instructions on how he's to be approached, how he's to be treated, uh, and again, how the ark was to be cared for and, and transported. The people from this tribe who were in charge of transporting the ark, they were not even allowed to gaze upon the ark. That also was a capital offense. God had declared that if somebody from this tribe merely glanced at the ark and the holy of holies just for an instant, they would die. So not only was Uzzah forbidden from touching the ark, he was forbidden from even looking upon the ark. But again, the story is the ark tumbles off the cart, and unless it falls to the ground... Uzzah reaches out probably instinctively and grabs it. Act of heroism? No. Act of utter rebellion. Sin of presumption. An act of arrogance. R.C. Sproul's helpful. He says, Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth, but it wasn't the ground or the mud that would desecrate the ark. It was the touch of man. Because God is utterly and absolutely, unalterably holy. And there's no one like him. And no mere man can approach him or treat him the way that man 
thinks is best. No man can approach a holy God on man's fashion or man, as man decides. R.C. Sproul says this. He says, the earth is, the, is an obedient creature. It does what God uh, tells it to do. It brings forth its yield in season and obeys the laws of nature that God established. The temperature falls and at a certain point the ground freezes. And when water, water is added to the dust, it becomes mud just as God uh, designed it. The ground doesn't commit cosmic treason as man has. There's nothing polluted about the ground. God did not want his holy throne touched by that which is contaminated by evil, that which is in rebellion against him, that which is by its ungodly revolts had brought the whole creation into ruin and caused the ground and the sky and the water and the sea to groan together and travail waiting for the days of redemption. Man, man's touch, that is what was forbidden. So the truth is in the story, Uzzah's not innocent. Uzzah wasn't punished without warning. He violated the clear command of God. And there was nothing whimsical towards him about what God did, what God did to Uzzah. Just like there's nothing whimsical uh, whimsical or, or uh, capricious about what God did, God did to Nadab and Abihu. Because God says, by those who come near, I will be treated as holy. Turn to the New Testament or just stay there and listen to whatever you choose. There's a similar story like this. You're probably already ahead of me in your thinking in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5. Verse 1, there's a certain man named Ananias, his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself. And with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And and after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have uh, conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Verse 5, he heard these words. Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who had heard it. And the young men arose and covered him up and carried him out, and they buried him. Verse 7, now there elapsed an interval of about three hours. His wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. She said, yes, that was the price. Verse 9. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they shall carry you out as well. Verse 10, She fell immediately at the feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. Before all people, I will be honored. I'll be glorified. God is utterly, absolutely, unalterably holy. There's no one like him. And no mere man can approach him or treat him the way that the man decides decides his best. No man can approach the holy God with casualness. Now, how important is the issue of holiness? Well, it's the only attribute of God that's mentioned uh, a triplicate in the text of the Scripture. Uh, again, I just uh, read it for you out of Isaiah 6 and then Revelation 4. Uh, we have that repeated uh, uh, twice in the text, the triplicate uh, uh, attribute of God, holy, holy, holy. But when we say something and give, uh, repeat it, we're trying to give emphasis to it. But when God says something three times, it's meant to uh, have, help us understand its supreme importance. It's interesting that you never find any of the other attributes of God mentioned like this. You never read that God is love, 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 or God is mercy, 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 but you read that God is holy, holy, holy. So what does it mean to be holy? Louis Burkhoff in his uh, Systematic Theology uh, says uh, the following regarding the holiness of God. He, he says the Hebrew word for be holy, kadash, is derived from the root kod, uh, which uh, it means to cut or to separate. He says it's not correct to think of holiness primarily as a moral or religious quality, as generally is done. Its fundamental idea is that of position 
or relationship existing between God and some person or thing. He says the scriptural idea of holiness of God is twofold. In its original sense, it denotes that he is absolutely distinct from all creatures and exalted above them in infinite majesty. That's a great quote. It's not just the moral uh, religious aspect. It's the separateness. It's that he's unapproachable. That the chasm is too wide. So very simply, I think you could say that, that holiness in, in its root uh, it means to be set apart. So again, God in his holiness means he's utterly separate from us. He's utterly and infinitely distinct from us. Again, this distance is infinite. His essential nature, his being, uh, incomparable. His infinite, supreme perfection. Again, Exodus fifteen eleven: Who is like you, majestic in holiness? First Samuel two and two: uh, There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no one who exists in the category of God except God Himself. Psalm one hundred eleven verse nine says, "Holy and awesome is Your name." Now, I would agree with those who say that holiness is a, probably the most difficult of God's attributes to define because it deals with the essence of God, the nature of God, the character of his being. Defining or trying to define holiness is like trying to define God, and it can't be done. We can describe holiness. We can find apt biblical illustrations of it. There are many uh, verses in the scripture that speak about God being on high or God high lifted up or in his holy uh, temple or sitting on his throne. So again, we can get that picture that God is separate from the creation, that God reigns over the creation. But the fact that God is holy is difficult to define entirely because it is the characteristic. It is the attribute. It is the essential nature of God. It's what makes God gone. Isaiah fifty seven fifteen. For thus says the high and the exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and holy place. Who's like this God? No one. And by those who come near me I will be treated as holy. Before all people I will be glorified, I will be honored. Burkoff again, he says, God is holy in everything that reveals him by his goodness, his grace, as well as his justice and his wrath. He said it may be called majesty holiness, the majesty holiness of God. And he says it includes such ideas of absolute unapproachability, absolute overpoweringness, or awful majesty, A-W-E-F-U-L, awful And when it comes to some idea of the issue of God's holiness, Burkhoff says, it awakens in man a sense of absolute nothingness, creature consciousness, creature feeling, leading to absolute self-abasement. Now again, I'm not sure that we have much of a proper understanding of the holiness of God in the modern church. As again, I think very few people would attend to the reality of the fact that it's indeed a fearful thing to come into the fall into the hands of the living God. And most of the modern church is so focused on self, it doesn't even see God. Unfortunately, I was having to listen to the radio on the way in this morning, and the car that I was driving, which I normally don't do, and an advertisement to come back to church because it's all about you. You've been gone from home so long. You need to come back. There's a God-shaped hole in your heart. I mean, it's just nonsense. It's absolute dribble. I encourage you, whatever that church that was, don't go there. Find some place that preaches the Bible. Not dribble. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And again, there's far too much casualness in the modern church with the person of God. And far too much lowering of God and as I just said the exaltation of man but the truth is the reality is God will be treated as holy 
So the sinfulness of sin in the ineffable, ineffable holiness of God demands that God will be treated as holy. Therefore, the proper response before the reality of this holy God is fear. Leviticus 25, verse 17, You shall fear your God, for I the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 19, verse 14, verse 32, the same chapter, says the same thing. You shall fear your God, for I am the Lord. In fact, Jesus says the same thing in the New Testament. He says we're not to fear men, we're to fear God. Luke 12, verse 5, I will warn you who to fear. Fear the one whom after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. He's saying men should fear God. Uh, again, Revelation fifteen four: Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you, before your righteous acts have been revealed. God is absolutely, perfectly holy. And he has an unalterable, utterly hatred for sin. And for sinful man to enter into his presence is a very terrifying thing. And the truth is, if you have never experienced, at least to some level, dread before this holy God, or tasted fear of this perfect, spotless being, if you've never experienced that or felt that fear then perhaps you don't know the true God. Or most certainly you don't understand him to the level that you should. Psalm 111 verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Your soul has never trembled in the presence of God's holiness. You're not a wise person. In fact, anywhere you see in the Bible... Where sinful man comes in contact with a living holy God, men fall on their face before him in utter terror. Isaiah's vision, Isaiah 6 and 1, In the year King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, in the train of his robe, filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Verse 5, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In the presence of the Holy God, the prophet Isaiah calls down condemnation and damnation on his, uh, against himself. Woe is me. That's what that means. He sees God in his absolute utter holiness and realizes his utter sinfulness and he shrieks in terror. Woe is me. I am undone. I'm destroyed. I'm dissolving is pretty much the idea. I'm disintegrating. I'm about to perish. I saw the Lord, therefore the Lord saw me a sinner. You see the same thing in Judges 13. Manoah and his wife they have a vision of, uh, of God. They see the angel of the Lord, and Manoah says to his wife, Judges 13, verse 22, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, as he referred to himself, described himself, when he sees the resurrected, glorified Christ, when he sees Revelation chapter uh, 1, verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and with his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, verse 17, I fell down at his feet like a dead man. So every person in the Bible has some kind of contact with the holiness of God and realizes that he's a sinner, that he has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, he is utterly guilty before this holy one, and he falls before him in utter terror. So I said at the beginning of our time, the greatest issue that all men have, the greatest problems that man may have, although he may have 10,000 temporal problems, the greatest problem that all men have is God. The holy God. The God whom we've all offended. The God who is so pure his eyes can't approve evil. The God that is absolutely distinct from all of his creation all of his creatures. 
exalted infinitely above them, infinite in majesty, absolute purity, unstained by sin. Because holiness is God's central and supreme perfection. Therefore, anytime we come to the presence of God, we are entering into the sphere of the sacred. We're no longer in the commonplace. Therefore, we can't treat God as common. Because he's not. And he's not just like us. In fact, he will not allow us to treat him as common. By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. Before all the people, I will be honored. I'm going to give you three quick points to consider about the holiness of God. And I already gave you the first one, but here's the heading. Three quick points. Number one, the holiness of God inspires fear. The holiness of God inspires fear. Secondly, the holiness of God inspires worship. The holiness of God inspires fear. The holiness of God inspires worship. On all the occasions where men fell before this holy God, God comes to them and calms their fear. In in Revelation 1, uh, verse 17, uh, we just read, it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. You see the same thing with Daniel. Daniel chapter 10. Daniel has a vision of God. He falls in a deep sleep, his face to the ground. And in verse 10 of that chapter, Daniel 10, there's a hand that touches him. Verse 12, the command is, do not be afraid, Daniel. Verse 18, uh, this one with whom human appearance touched me again and strengthened me and said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage, be be courageous. Now as soon as he spoke, I began to receive strength. In Luke chapter 5, uh, uh, Christ is preaching in the boat and, and then Peter tells him to put down the net uh, for, uh, for a catch of fish and Peter protests. He says, look, we, we've been working hard all night. We haven't caught anything, but, but I'll do what you asked me to do. And so Peter obeys the command. He drops the net into the water and there's such a great catch of fish, uh, a great quantity of fish that the nets begin to break and they're trying to pull the fish into the boat, into this boat and the one that's the other side of them and both boats begin to sink because there's so many fish. Luke 5, 8. When Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Verse 10, Jesus says to Peter, Do not fear. So point one, the holiness of God inspires fear. Point two, the holiness of God inspires worship. Because once a person begins to grasp the holiness of God, love soon overtakes the sense of fear. And the one who once trembled at the holiness of God now begins to worship the Holy One. And as you come to truly understand God and and see the beauty of your holiness, uh, the beauty of His holiness, you become captivated by Him. And He becomes the object of your worship. He, He becomes the object of your adoration. Psalm 99, verse 2. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted above all the peoples. Verse 3. Let them praise thy great and awesome name. Holy is he. Verse 5. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his holy hill. For holy is the Lord our God. Again, I read it three times, I think, up to this point. But a fourth time, Revelation 15, 4. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you are alone art holy, and all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The holy God is the right object of worship. So the holiness of God inspires fear. The holiness of God inspires worship because he's the right object of worship. But number three, the holiness of God invites invitation. The holiness of God invites invitation. Because God is holy, we are to be holy. We are called to cultivate holy lives. And again, you become like that which you worship. That's why I read Psalm 115 at the beginning. Again, it contrasts those who know and worship the true God with those who do not. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to thy name I give glory because of thy love and kindness, because of thy truth. Why should the nations say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he, he pleases. Their Idols are silver and gold and works of man's hand. They have mouths they can't speak. They have eyes they can't see. They have ears they can't hear. They have noses but can't smell. They have hands but they can't feel. They have feet but they can't walk. Cannot make a sound with their throat. 
Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help. He is their shield. So the people of the world who don't know God, don't know Christ, they they worship the objects of the world and uh, entertainment, uh, money, success, whatever. And when they worship the idols of the world, they become just like them, nothing. Worthless, shallow, trivial, frivolous. But those who worship the true God become like Him. As again, holiness invites imitation. Leviticus 11, verse 44, I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourself before Therefore, and be holy as I am holy. Leviticus 19.2, speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 20, verse 7, you shall consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 20, verse 26, you shall be holy to me for I, the Lord your God, am holy. I've set you apart from all the peoples to be mine. Go to the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. You know this. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. 1 Peter 1, verse 15. Be like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. The writer of the book of Hebrews, uh, speaking of the supremacy of the Uh, The person of Jesus Christ says this in chapter 7, verse 25. Hence also he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. God is holy. And we who are his must also be holy, living Life, our life separate from the world. And lastly, because this God is holy, our God is holy. It's the holiness of God that demands that if men would approach him, they would treat him not only as holy, but they would have access into his very presence only found by way of what? Sacrifice. Again, the wages of sin is death. Someone has to pay the penalty. Blood has to be shed. Leviticus 17.11 For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood by reason of life that makes atonement. The entire sacrificial system obviously in the book of Leviticus uh, was required as atonement for sin. Again, demonstrating God's holiness and man's need uh, for cleansing, uh, the washing away of sin. But of course, finally, all those things could never fully deal with the issue of sin. Hebrews 10.4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Therefore, the place we see the ultimate demonstration of the holiness of God is that God manifests His holiness at the cross. That's where we get a picture of the glimpse of the sinfulness of sin. That's where we get a picture of, God, picture of God's utter hatred for sin, uh, the fact that he punishes sin. Again, Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There is no remission of sin. God's hatred for sin is so great, his holiness so infinite, that he chose, out of mercy really, to pour out his wrath upon a substitute. His dear son, the beloved Lord Jesus Christ, instead of punishing us as we aptly deserve. It was at the cross where God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The greatest manifestation of the holiness of God is at the cross, the sacrifice of his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But one step before that, the greatest manifestation of the holiness of God is the fact that God sent Christ into the world, the Incarnation. One writer says this, he says, the real test of holiness is not can it survive in heaven, the real test of holiness is holiness is it can it survive here on the earth. The real test of God's holiness is not 
can he be holy when he sits on his throne in perfect heaven surrounded by perfect angelic beings? The real test of holiness is can he remain holy when he is here with imperfect, wretched sinners? When he is thrust into the planet dominated by Satan, when he is personally assaulted by Satan and by demons who do everything they can to pollute him, when he's attacked and maligned and hated and vilified and persecuted and rejected, can his holiness survive that surrounding, surrounding by sinners? And of course it can and it has in the person of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 verse 18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father has explained him. Jesus Christ. He, the writer of the book of Hebrews says very much the same thing with a little bit different language. Hebrews 1, 1, God after he spoke long ago and the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom he also made the world. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds things by the word of his power and when he made purifications of sin he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There's no clearer view of God than person of Jesus Christ. There's no clearer view of the holiness of God than looking at the person of Jesus Christ. And we are commanded not to approach this holy God with casuality, in a casual fashion. But listen, through the person of Jesus Christ, God bids us to do what? Come. He bids us to freely come to the throne of grace that we might find help in our time of need. Can't approach God any other way than God has described or God has ascribed. Both words are correct. We can only approach him through Christ. He's at a distance because he's holy. Christ is the one who bridges that gap gap, and God bids us to come boldly to the throne of grace to find help in our time of need. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to make our final stop in the book of Leviticus and look at chapter 16 because that takes us to the person of Christ. The day of atonement, the the issue of the scapegoat. We've still got to deal with the issue of priests. And we're going to see how all of this points to the perfect Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gives himself as a sacrifice in our place that allows us to have free access into the presence of God. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for our study uh, this morning and so thankful for our look here at um, the reality of your holiness. I pray, Lord, for all of us that you'd help us to think clearly and deeply that sin is exceedingly sinful, that access to you is not cheap, that we can't invent our own way to come to you. We can only come through the shed blood of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, Uh, Again, we're desperate in need. And you, out of your great grace and mercy, have provided access to yourself, forgiveness of sin through your Son. I pray, Lord, for all of us, you'd help us to have a greater appreciation of your holiness and a greater appreciation of the cost that we have been won, the cost that you paid, the cost that Christ paid to give us access. So that holy, that infinite chasm is filled by the person of Jesus Christ, who is our hope. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.